Recovery is about changing the conversation that has been placed inside our heads by abusive parenting. My name is Andrea and this is The Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Hello, my dear shit shows. How the hell are you doing? So today, we are diving deep with a, a fabulous couple, Jeremiah and Mallory Campbell. Jeremiah, recovering heroin addict. Mallory, recovering codependent. Uh, they have a podcast together called Destined to Be. They are both coaches And unbeknownst to me and what I learned in the midst of the interview, within the last year, both of them have had their aha moments as far as the true impact that their childhood had on them and that they have complex PTSD and have been embarking on the work, have been doing the damn work, the hard work to heal and recover. And I was just thinking about how cool it is for them to be able to go through this experience together because I've heard many stories about how difficult it can be for someone whose partner is bottoming out with this childhood shit and starting to do this trauma work. Um, You know, it's already difficult enough for a layperson to understand addiction and alcoholism. And I feel like it's even more difficult for a layperson to understand this adult child shit. And so when we're first doing the work, you know, we're so raw and vulnerable and easily triggered. And I can imagine that that has to be very difficult for that person's partner. So how cool that they get to um, go through this experience together and they both understand what each other is going through. So we're going to be talking about trauma, codependency, their marriage, all sorts of shit. You will very much enjoy this conversation. So this past Sunday in the Patreon group, we had quite a a powerful meeting. I I wish I had recorded it, but I didn't. But we had uh, one new Dear Shit show in the group, and she is in it, y'all. She is in a shitload of pain. She is hitting her adult child bottom, and uh, of no surprise, it's related to a romantic relationship. Um, But I was so excited for her because I could see that she's at that place where she's ready to do the damn thing. You know, she's ready to do the work. She's at that the gig is up moment. I just came up with that in the past day or so. What if we called it the gig is up moment instead of hitting bottom? Uh, We hit our gig is up moment. I personally really like bottoms, but if maybe you are one who doesn't, you could call it your gig is up moment. Um, but we've talked about this this moment and we've talked about how, you know, we have to first have awareness and stay in that place of awareness before we move into a place of acceptance and start taking action. And it's like we realize that we're an adult child and at this moment we step into this pitch black room with a fucking monster. And we know that monster's in there, but we tell ourselves it's not because we can't see it, right? 
And so we just sit there and we're in fear, but we're trying to pretend like we're not in fear. We're trying to pretend like this monster's not in there. And then at a certain point, all of a sudden, the light goes up. It is so fucking bright in that room and there is no more denying that there is a monster in the room. What is seen cannot be unseen. And we get to this place where we are willing to do whatever the hell it takes to get out of this room. And that is such a painful moment. But there also is just this huge sense of relief that comes from it. So I just started reading this book called Conquering Shame and Codependency. Uh, Highly, highly, highly recommend it. I will include a link to it in the show notes, but there's this one quote in there that I wanted to read. So it says, we need to stop the cycle, which requires that we step outside of our comfort zone long enough to choose a different path, a path of recovery. It may not be easy at first, but being codependent is no picnic either. Now, is that not the biggest fucking understatement that you have ever heard? Being codependent is no picnic either. Uh, being codependent sucks ass. <laughs> it was way more p- painful than my alcoholism. Uh, it is the worst pain ever. And so I was reflecting on the time that I spent in that pitch black room with that monster. Uh, And that was my relationship with Brian number two. It was through my relationship with Brian number one when I had my aha and I entered this pitch black room with the monster. And then I sat in that room with that monster for the duration of my relationship with Brian number two. So I was going through an old iPad of mine to see if I could find any uh, juicy texts from that period in my life. If you have not heard the the tale of two Bryans, you need to go listen to it right now. So episode 50, I combined all of the Brian stories. So I had told the story over a few episodes, but I combined it all in in my 50th episodes. Go listen to that right now if you have not, seriously. Um, so I so this text message is from November 25th. So I think that this was just right after the uh the Ritz Carlton bender. And so I'm not I don't know who the hell I was texting. I don't have a name attached to this number, but I said, "Shit blew up in the past few days with Brian. I'm in so much pain, but I can't continue this way. I'm starting to believe that I am never ever going to have a healthy relationship. I feel like I'm sliding into a really 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 dark place where I was when I hit the bottom 2 years ago. I'm not suicidal, but I don't want to live." Oh man. And um <laughs> that wasn't it. I still stayed in that pitch black room for another I guess another month and a half or so. So I want to talk about that the kind of like my final 24 hours in that pitch black room and I've told part of this story but not the whole thing. So um it was I guess it was a Thursday night and some of Brian number 2. We had this period of where things were like okay for a few weeks and I'm just, you know, living in denial and not in denial. It's like, it's just, you know, the inevitable, you know, it's coming and you're just fucking holding on for dear life, uh, trying to soak in every moment of misery <laughs> until the band aid just gets completely ripped off. And I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. I knew that the switch was about to come on. And so, uh, it was a Thursday night and some of Brian's childhood friends were in town 
and we were going out to dinner with them. And now this was a really big fucking deal for me because as I've shared before, in all my prior relationships, um, I was I was kept as a secret. You know, I was the secret girlfriend. I was completely compartmentalized in their life. I never met their friends. I never met their families. I felt a shitload of shame about that. And that really just kind of triggered the middle school shit where I was the girl that nobody was allowed to be friends with or wanted to be friends with or was embarrassed to be friends with. That, you know, replayed itself out in my romantic relationship. So the fact that he wanted to introduce me to some of his longest standing friends was, you know, I was eating that shit up, guys. (laughs) Who cares if he's a horrible alcoholic? Uh, that goes on 16-day benders. He is introducing introducing me to his friends, so clearly this is my soulmate. Um, but we go out to dinner, and we had a really nice time. And then after dinner, we go to this, like, country western bar with his friends. And he was being very distant at the bar. He was being very distant. He didn't really want to talk to me. And I could tell that something was up. And so then it was... Uh, his friends were going back to their hotel. It was probably like 1130 at night. They, he had been drinking all day. And so they're going back to his hotel, their hotel, and we're going back to his apartment. But of course, we're not going back to his apartment, right, guys? He wants to go to another bar. And I'm trying to convince him to not go to this other bar. So we walk into this dive bar. Now, this was the bar that on several mornings, I left work to go pull him out of it. Uh, So we walk into this bar. This bar is clearly aware he has a drinking problem. And so he he sits at the bar and he orders a drink. I'm standing behind him and he asks orders the he orders a drink and the bartender kind of makes some sort of like questions him like, are you sure or whatever? And then he looks at me and I just like shake my head to say no, like do not do not give him a drink. And so then the bartender was like, sorry, we can't serve you. And so he knew. He knew that I had, like, shook my head to the bartender. So we walk outside, and he's just going off on me. And I'm just standing there fucking taking it. I'm just standing there taking it. You know, I'm, I'm convincing him to go home. He won't go home. And so we walk into this other restaurant across the street where he orders a drink. And I was just thinking about how fucking pathetic that was. It was so pathetic. Like, I could have just gone home. I could have just gone home. I was not having a good time at all. He was so drunk. He was being mean to me. And that's just how, oh, it just really makes me sad when I think about that moment. How, like, calling an Uber and going home, it, like, wasn't even an option to me. It wasn't a possibility. It wasn't a consideration. I just remember sitting in this other restaurant and, you know, him just drinking whiskey and being so fucking drunk and then, you know, eventually leaving and having to carry him up the stairs and God, (laughs) no picnic, my friends, no picnic. Uh, But I, I considered it to be like a black tie affair gala. (laughs) Give me more. Um, But then the next morning, you know, I woke up and that's when I, I rolled over And he said to me, "Um, I don't want to do this anymore. And, you know, in all the other times he had told me it was because of his drinking and he didn't want to put me through this. But this time he was telling me that it was because he wanted to see other people. 
and God, that fucking crushed me. Like that crushed me. And it's interesting that that was the moment that the light really came on for me. It was like bright as hell. And I knew that this was the moment. And because I knew that this was the moment, I couldn't get myself to leave his apartment. Like I just couldn't get myself to leave because I knew as soon as I left that that was it. I knew that that was it. And so I just spent like the next, I don't know, like six hours like at his apartment, like physically unable to leave. Like I was like hostage. It was just, oh, I can, I can remember it. Like I can feel it as I close my eyes and think about it. I remember sitting on the rooftop of his apartment building and they just had this amazing rooftop. You could see the, um, the Golden Gate Bridge from it. And I just remember sitting on that rooftop, chain smoking cigarettes feeling like a fucking junkie. Like I just felt so cracked out and miserable and just being on the phone and calling my friend and just being like, I, I can't leave. I can't leave. I need you to, I need you to get me out of here. And, um, she said, I'm calling you an Uber and you're fucking getting in that Uber. And I, I got in that Uber and it was like the moment that I got into that Uber was the moment that I felt some of that relief. Like that relief came in. I was still in so much pain, but the relief came in and it was that the gig is up moment. Um, God, it's crazy. It's really, you guys, it's so crazy to think back on this. That was what, I guess over four years ago. And, um, it just blows my mind that I'm talking to you right now and telling you all these things and that like, it like really makes me emotional. Um, when I just, oh, you guys know I don't cry. I actually have a few tears that are coming out now, but don't worry. My antidepressants are going (laughs) to make them. It'll only be a couple of tears. My Lexapro's like, nope, two tears, you're done. Um, I just can't believe, like, I don't know what this podcast and I can't believe, like, how many of y'all have shared your aha moments with me. And I'm just so grateful, like, for this space that's been created so that you guys know that there's nothing to be ashamed of, you know, like, like that book, Conquering Shame and Codependency. You know, I felt so much shame about the way that I behaved in romantic relationships, especially because I just didn't, none of my friends were like me, you know, they didn't, maybe they struggled with it like a little bit, but like not to the degree that I did. And, um, you know, like they just, I don't know. I just, I felt so judged and most of it was just like me judging myself, but I just felt like such a fucking loser and I was so miserable And I spent years like trying to combat this misery and I didn't have any idea what the fuck was wrong with me like for years. And I'm just so grateful that I figured it out. Um, And I just feel so honored to be standing here in my closet. I'm not sitting on the floor. As I said, I I upgraded to my my standing work desk, which is now my computer and my micro on top of my dresser. Um... I just feel so honored to be talking to you guys. Thank you so much. As I've said before, I've just never felt so seen, so heard, so understood. 
you know, if you are in this moment, if you are, you know, if you're in that, in that dark room right now, I know that there are some of you listening right now that are sitting in that dark room with that monster. Um, it's okay. It's going to be okay when that, when that light switch comes on and I'm really excited and can't wait for that moment to happen for you. And, um, yeah, I just want you to know no judgment here, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be embarrassed of. There's so many people out there who know exactly how you feel. So many people. And that's why I made this podcast because I wanted you guys to know that you're not alone. And I wanted you guys to know that you really can do the work and you can really heal and you can really change. And so the second part of that quote says, and in recovery, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. We stop escaping. We get in touch with our real self and begin living fully and authentically. That sounds like quite a picnic in the park, getting in touch with our real self and beginning to live fully and authentically. <sighs> well, let's uh, let's move it along um, to the interview, which you guys are going to love. But of course, uh, please damn the join Patreon, as I like to say here. Join the damn Patreon, damn the join Patreon. That is where I host three weekly support groups on Zoom, and it's where... You can get some support and realize that you're not alone and we can help you as as you um, are in that room with that monster and the light comes on. So head on over to patreon.com slash adult child to join the group. You can also help a girl out by following me on Instagram and TikTok. I'm almost at 5,000 for Instagram. You guys, this is it's really hard to grow on Instagram. I'm up to 26K on TikTok, but the Instagram is slow. So could you please Go over there and give me a damn follow on, on the old Instagram at adultchildpod. And of course, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. Thank you so very much. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce two shit shows, two married shit shows, uh, co-host of the Destined to Be podcast, uh, Jeremiah and Mallory Campbell. They are both coaches, business coach, relationship coach, life coaching, all that shit, shit show coaching. So I'm ready to, are you guys ready to do this? I ready? love it. That's and our favorite intro I think I've ever gotten. <laughs> Well, most people take offense to that. Like, they're like, who are you calling a shit show? No. And I guess this is the right audience for it. No. Yeah. We're here Uh, for it. Hot Mess Express. Yeah. Yes. Hot Mess Express. Yeah. I used to say recovering shit show, but that's inaccurate. I'm a recovering shit show. I'm still a shit show. Yeah. Um, Okay. So this is where I want to start. Talk about the most difficult time in your marriage. Mm. Or between us or period. As a couple, like I, I would guess the two your, of us together, your parents. Oh, okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Go for it. It was with her parents. We just had our, he's eight now. So we just had our first son. Mm-hmm. And so with my surprise, so we're going to take it back a little bit. Yeah. Go back farther. Go back farther. Um, Mallory and I grew up sort of together. I've known her since I was like maybe 14. We've been 15. together since right out of high school. I was so 18. Was, I was 21 and we were friends. I used to buy her booze with my fake, I, sure with my fake ID. Yep. 
And uh, like a good old half gallon of five o'clock. That was our go-to. I liked Mohawk myself, but that's whatever. She's classy with the five o'clock. And so, and so we, we grew up in the same area, just uh, Southeast Michigan. And I, her neighbor, they used to call me Eddie Haskell. And familiar with like, yeah, leave it to Beaver. Beaver. Okay. Yeah. So that was the kind of person I was. And so I still are still, I mean, it's called charming. it's, It's the difference now because because now we're not poor, right? And so when you're poor, you're <laughs> weird. And when you have money, you're eccentric. No one was calling you weird. You were just But that's charming. the difference. Yeah. Now, back then, it was Eddie Haskell. Edward yeah, Haskell was... now? Yes. Haskell. Oh, that's good. And, oh, we're and that's that, even yeah. deeper because I was Jeremy my entire life until mm-hmm. I turned 18. My real name's Jeremiah. I got When I got sober, they said, completely change everything or go back to drinking and drugging. So I'm, I'm like, so my glad you Jeremiah. didn't pick Jerry or I wouldn't have had you on. No, Jerry <laughs> is not allowed. That's not a sexy name. That's her uncle's name. That too. is also my uncle's name. So that's, that's not good. That's not the move. I have like a few names. Like there's certain names of guys like I couldn't date if you had to call them that. Like I know that this isn't a name and I'm really sorry if anybody's listen, listening and this is their name. But if somebody was named Dougie, like I couldn't do a Dougie. No, like, do like the that's Dougie? the song. Like that's a song. Do so you Dougie. don't listen to that often. Or like, well, it's different in a song context, but when you're like, like literally a, doing the Dougie. I don't think I could Dougie. do a Melvin. <laughs> <laughs> no, Melvin, Melvin's not going to fly either. Thank God your names are not any of those things. Melvin Medford. No, that's my, that's my, that was my grandpa's name was Medford. That's another one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So right, anyway. So. so the, the premise of the story is I ended up relapsing. I had, I had a day shy, eight months sober, ended up relapsing. When I relapsed, when Mallory and I first started dating, she got a DUI. She was 18 years 18. old. Got, she got a DUI visiting her boyfriend up, yep, at, up at college. Up at college. And so she like followed the rules. And she was like, well, they said, don't drive. So she like stayed so home. I didn't. I like followed all the rules. They're like, you can't drive. You can't do any of this. And I'm like, I'm going to do all of that. And not, I'm not, I, like, I'm not going to do any of that and follow everything that they said. You're one of those. Got That's yes. right. Weird. But right? Who, who does that? <laughs> <laughs> However, I still got the DUI and did a bunch of dumb shit before that. So, you know, and so I was freshly out of my third rehab center and mm-hmm. I couldn't stay sober. And so I we called the guy married at I, this point. What's that? No, we, we weren't married yet. I was 18 and he oh, was, we were just starting dating 21. 21. Oh. And so, mm-hmm. and so we ended up going through, and this is going to get back to the, the actual nice. question you asked. And so then I, I couldn't stay sober and it was my third rehab center. I didn't understand addiction. So my dad would pick me up. We'd smoke weed on the way home. Like it was just don't go back to doing heroin, dude. You'll be fine. And so I, I, I didn't know how to stay sober, literally. Uh-huh. And, and so I called my buddy and his dad was sober growing up. And I knew he was a sober guy. He was cool. Very successful businessman. I said, I said, his name was Howie. I said, Howie, I can't stay sober. He goes, give me 20 minutes. I'm coming to pick you up. I'm gonna take you to a meeting. So he comes and picks me up, takes me to a meeting. Uh, I, I start crying to him in the car. I said, dude, I, I don't know how this is a bad place in my environment with my dad. Come move in with me. He said, so I moved in with him next door to Mallory. He's my next door neighbor. Okay. My whole life. She catches her DUI. I just happened to be leaving my third rehab center. But you guys already money. knew each other? Or yes. Yeah, we knew we each went other. to high school together. So we knew each other from, I was like 15 and now I'm 21. So we knew okay. each other for about six years. Yeah. Okay. I knew her mom, her dad, all of these things. Okay. Yep. So then- all these things. Uh, yes. So then I, so, so then I ended up going the next door. Well, I was this charming Edward. I wasn't Edward. I was not Eddie. Edward at the time. I was Eddie Haskell and she, yeah. she had got a GUI. I had no car, no license, no job, no money, no nothing. And I'm like, Hey, you want to hang out? <laughs> I'm like, sure like, do. Can't resist and, that. Right? Can't resist that at all. And so we started hanging out and then we ended up started dating and our first mm-hmm. kiss was in a bowling. Yeah. Right? Yes. We were in a bowling alley. It was my yeah. first kiss. And not with, in life with, her. with me. <laughs> 
and we crossed that threshold. So yes. then I relapsed. So we dated for about three months. I was somewhere in there. It was three to four months. I had a day shy of seven months sobriety. I relapsed with a guy and I had, I was on a relapse for about two months. I don't know. I'm half, terrible with timelines. A month and a half. You know, right away. No, I didn't know. So when I'm 18, I also we turned were, 21 at the time we were together and so much together that I couldn't see outside of the bubble of, oh my gosh, he's changing because I was like with him 24 hours a day. So I had no idea. You know, developing codependency habits oh, you know, early on. Oh, oh God. Yeah. So like I had no clue. So it got to the point where my parents were drug testing you and I was no, like no, no, no. fighting it. Howie next door went to your dad and said, Jeremiah yes. relapsed. Okay. Details. Now yes. go and give him a drug test. Correct. So what did I do? I don't. What did you I do? did what every Edward oh, Haskell yes. would do and call their you, mother. You called your mom. I called How my does mom. It happened though. Like they were like, "Come here, son." Like his. Yeah. 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 Okay. And I followed, and okay. I called my mom, and I'm like, "Hey, you're going to come over and here." And that was the start of the it start all. of the craziness. <laughs> the start of everything. Yeah. Okay. And, no. Well, I loved you. Yes. I was in love with you. You were in love with me. You were living at home. Yeah. I was living next door slash yeah. my house. Your mom slashed your tires. She slashed my tires. Like not even in the, like the tread part, like in the side. So it, you couldn't even fix it. She couldn't come Wait, and see me like a pair of scissors. Because of the DUI? No, because uh, this was, I was gonna say, well, that's why you didn't drive is because your mom slashed your tire. <laughs> right? One, one would think. Rolls. One would think. <laughs> yes. No, she slashed my tire. At this point I could drive again. I, I, obviously. Yeah. And then she slashed my tire. So I couldn't go see him because yes. he had relapsed, but he was next door. He was, I don't know where okay. you were. At my mom. I he left, was back I at his mom's house. I relapsed. Yes. He, this was mid relapse. He left okay. the neighbor's house. So anyway, details let's move yes. it along. So then, so then I had to get, so I went back two different rehab centers, get sober. This is my sobriety that I'm in now. And so I go to rehab, um, through the grace of God, the place I was going, I went to four rehab, same place. He said, I can never come back. So I picked a new rehab center, uh, went to this rehab center, detox and released, ended up going straight back to meetings and through the, and then that's when my little brother passed away. Mm -hmm. He was 18. He passed over, uh, passed away with a, from a drug overdose. Mm -hmm. Your parents came to the funeral, but they wouldn't talk to me. So mm -hmm. I spent the next four years of my life trying to prove myself to her father that I was enough. I was the drug addict that relapsed with his daughter was never good enough. So I spent all this time trying to get validation and approval from her dad. So I finally earned that validation and approval. Well, I didn't realize it because just like you said, why would you go back and say, why wouldn't you just tell them you're not my parents? Fuck off. Like, leave me alone. My logic wasn't there. I didn't have sound mind and body at the time I was during a relapse. Right. Well, also it's your girlfriend's parents. So what? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You wanted their approval. And so, so I spent all this time when we had our first son, I'm going to fast forward. I finally won that approval. And, so now and we get married by a house. Like they did all, all the things, things. do all the things. And we didn't, I didn't realize she didn't realize that we were still the children. They never viewed us as adults at the time. I mean, we already had, a. I, I started my construction business. We were very successful. Like we, we took trips all over the, I mean, the country, the world, like we yeah. did things to approve, to get the validation of like, oh, you're successful. Mm -hmm. And I did all those, but he never looked at me that way. So then we had our first son mm -hmm. and that's when all the stuff started happening. Her mom. And so yes, now well, I had postpartum depression at this time. So I get pregnant. Like it was planned. This is exactly what we wanted. We knew we wanted to have kids. So I get pregnant. 
As soon as I give birth, I have postpartum, which was not easy on our marriage because no one expects that to happen, right? First time parents, you have no idea what to even expect. Everyone paints this picture of pregnancy and the baby comes and it's just this beautiful moment. And like, you don't like this was back in 2014. So social media was here, but it wasn't as raw as you tend to see now. Everything was still like magazines and reading all the highs of all the great things. And here I am giving birth a very somewhat traumatic birth. And for the first one, I mean, it wasn't, Oh yeah. You're a girl wore off. You broke shit. Was, you broke the stirrup. Yeah, and it was, thing it and... wasn't a good experience. <laughs> uh, my mom at the time couldn't even be in the room because she was feeding off of my pain and agony to where she couldn't even be there for me. Cause she was just holding everything that I was holding. So I, she couldn't even be there. Her, I didn't even know like what was, I was out of it. Right. Like going through this birth process and I give birth baby blues extended to postpartum depression. And I didn't know what it was. So here I am going through this time in my life. And then I decided to start competing in fitness competitions immediately after giving birth. That, seven was, months. After. that was after when you yes, started, but I started prepping immediately yes. that when I could, I competed seven months after having my first baby, which I would suggest to no one that's like insane. So that all happened in that stretch of time, just to give context as to what I was going through when that's what led up to the worst. So our son Ryder was six and a half, seven months old. Mm -hmm. It was right. He was born in March. It was right around November, right around Thanksgiving. And we, it started going where, where I, I never realized it before, but her dad would call her and be like, Hey, your mom's depressed. She's in bed. Come fix her. Mm. Correct. And I'm like, what you, we, we, no, we got like a family, like there's a kid, like, no, like, like we, we were got... our own family unit, but not really viewed as that. So... And so then he started calling her and being like, Mallory, you need to come home to have a family meeting. Like right. without me, like, like she was still part of that family. Mm -hmm. And, and then they gave her the ultimatum and, and there was like, it was a series of events over like two, it three went weeks. on for a really like extended period of time. Like we went to counseling and therapy with them. Like we did until the one everything. day until the, there was, this was after until the one day when it was like, you guys need to come over and we need to address this. Cause we played racquetball on a Sunday. Right. And I told her, I said, Hey, his name's Chuck. I said, Chuck Mallory is her own person. You need to allow us to have this space. And he's like, you, what are you talking about? Like, no. And he never could comprehend At, later on. We found out how big of a narcissist he was and how they're, they're in their dependent relationship and all the stuff that was going on after, after the fact, but we need to have a, a meeting and I need to have a meeting with Mallory. And I said, you're not having a meeting with my wife without me there. Mm -hmm. Like that's not going to happen. It's me, Mallory and our son. We need to figure this out. So we go have a meeting. We sit down. So Mallory and I, I call my sponsor on the way and he gives and he prays with us. Mallory and I are holding hands. We're praying. We're like, I don't know how this is going to go down. And on the depth of my soul, we walk into this house and they're sitting there with that mean mugging look. It was just, just a very tense situation. And, and we sit down tense. on the couch and I say, Hey, just so you guys know, this conversation mm -hmm. might change and alter the next 20 years of our lives. And this is, and, 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 and it did, cause he kept yeah. calling names to my mom and we went back and it forth. It was and just back very messy. It was a very, your mom, messy. my mom. Oh. Yep. This was oh. my parents. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, so yeah, it was a very messy. So we had a situation. falling out. To had a answer your out. question for from 20 minutes ago for real <laughs> we had a falling out with her parents she yeah. we were very close we went dining with them once a week i mean we hung out with them they, went on we, their boat went on there we were their children we went dining right. with them uh -huh. we were like, like 
we spent a lot of time together. We had a really good relationship until we dined with those. Right, chaps. like I don't even know. Yes, but like your dad had his fucking uh whatever a Tommy Bahama shit right. on. And- All right, details. My dad loves the Tommy Bahama too. <laughs> yeah, I think every dad. Is In like my fat kid stage, I did too. Okay, enough. <laughs> I had Velcro pants. You did. You did. Um, so yes, to answer your question, <laughs> to answer your question, that has been the probably the hardest time in our marriage. And that was well, it was a divorce, in? but we, I, you, me, I'm gonna speak for myself, had no idea about my neurology. I had no idea about Correct. fight, flight, fawn, freeze, none of it. We had all I knew was I was freaking the fuck out, mm-hmm. and so were you. And all we could oh, God, do yeah. is, is it was so traumatic, right? Too much, too soon, too fast. It was so traumatic. It was so hard. It was my our, our lives as we knew it were flipped upside down. And for the first time in my life, or since I couldn't get sober, or mm-hmm. before then, and it triggered all this tra- childhood trauma, where I was like, "Oh my God, it's just us, me and her. Like we have nobody else." Because yeah. we already abandoned my dad. We already like. Mm-hmm. Cut him off and yeah. Well, so yeah, yeah. you're okay. So it's uh, it causes a rift between with you and your family. But talk about what was going on between the two of you. I mean, was it was that just like a difficult time? I guess my question was more so, and I'm glad that you shared that because there's a lot to dive into there. But would you say that was that the most difficult time between the relationship between the two of you? Uh, what would no. you say? I don't think so. June. So you answered the question completely incorrectly. Fuck. It's okay. Well, there was a there was a lot there that will yes. There's a lot a there. lot of juice there that I have questions on. But yeah, <laughs> I would say sure. my question was gonna more so like okay. when like when were you not gonna make it? Like was mm. never. I yeah that was I don't think that's ever been in question. Okay, but when was the closest? <laughs> the closest. Um, I mean me or her? She's saying in the M- relationship. Mutual. I know mutual. Well, last June I had June? a panic that's attack. That's the first. That's the that's the juicy and, one. And and you guys, nobody's got social mental, uh, uh, mentally. What, what am I looking for? I don't know. What just happened? What's the problem that happened in Texas? Mental mental health. Mental illness. Mental health. Okay. Nobody's got those. They're just fucking weak. Okay. That's how I thought. Okay. So let's take it back. I was okay. So prior to June twenty twenty one. Yes. You were very much operating in all or nothing. It's weak if you rest. Like if you can't, you can't share a feeling. I'll figure it out for you. Like that type of thing. I went on our podcast. Um, <gasps> oh my god! And I was sitting from. You sound like you're in like real adult child mode. Oh, I go oh. still. You want to know about that? Oh, well, no. It sounds like yeah, it sounds, it sounds like an adult child bottom. But continue. Yes. And so I was sitting there across from her and, and at the depth of my soul, this was true. I was like, if I die, you should be fine within two or three weeks. Yep. Two or three weeks after 15 years together, I would just be fine. And I'm like, that's like you could absolutely figure it out. untrue. Like, no, that's not a thing for me. Two to three weeks. And yeah. I'm like, how would you feel? He's like, yeah, give me like two to three weeks and I'd be good. And I'm like, excuse me. Yeah. Like, aired on the podcast and i'm like that it was i don't i don't really know how to respond to that like two or three weeks that's where i was that was where i was mother of your very emotionally emotionally. in tune 
Yeah. Like I, so there wasn't any of that. It was like, you were weak because you didn't do this. So I was a mindset coach and I was around very masculine men for a very long time. That was like, if you want this, like my whole life, I run my life. I run our marriage as a business and it doesn't work with, with masculine and feminine energy. It doesn't work. Like I do like this. He didn't believe in any of that dynamic. He's like, what do you mean? You got to, you're showing up this way. No, just you tell me your problem it. and I'll just fucking fix it for you. Yeah. Like just fix it. So I have all like, and I'm not putting any blame on you, but even I? from my previous childhood, like I have so much wounding inside that my body just responds in a certain way that I had no idea. So now that we're becoming like, we're more aware to all of these things still now I become triggered internally, mentally. I know the difference, but inside I'm like, exactly right back to it in a matter of yeah. And then, when you're, and then when he responds in that way, then it's like the shame of like, I shouldn't feel this yes. way. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that happened. So I you forgot, had, I forgot the name what? of the podcast for a second. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's, let's switch the direction. Mm-hmm. Do you want to yeah, know about I'm the real, ad- y'all out. <laughs> you know, the real adult child shit. How about last night? What about last night? When you, when, when we, she was sick. And so we oh. planned on having sex last night. I was sick, not sick last night. Yes, I know. But you ever remember earlier in the day, you were like, yes, yeah, like we, we talked about being intimate, right? Uh-huh. And right before bed, you pulled the I'm tired shit, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, we had just like a, cro- a miscommunication. There of, was no miscommunication. Yes, yes. Mallory says she's tired. Little Jeremy says he's not loved. Mm-hmm. Little Jeremy, the little boy in me then says, hey, mom doesn't approve mom doesn't want me mom doesn't think Mm -hmm. that i'm enough yeah and so then i automatically jeremiah in front of you then gets triggered and says you're not enough Mm. yes all she said she was so he looks at me in the eye and he's like you saying you're tired means i'm not enough i'm like excuse me what like that's immediately where you go to he's like yeah so we had to like work through that last night it's not here it's a response here yeah. Mm-hmm. In my but, body. But that's mm-hmm. still not the moment that she's asking about. Okay. So I just want to give her an idea. Okay. I, I, I really... <laughs> so the most difficult time. He's trying not to get, he doesn't want to, he don't, he's trying to really avoid this. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm kidding. The most difficult time was probably last June. Yes. It was last June. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was a series of things. That's where I was about a month and a half before we had the conversation, before we started having the conversations, before I started really having like biological, neurological, like your nervous system was in overdrive to where his, he would physically be moving about, we'd having, be having a conversation. He'd be like twitching and all of this energy would start to come up. And he's like, I don't even know what's happening. Then your lips would be shivering Shivering and like this whole and I had no idea what was going on. We had no clue what was happening at the time. We're like, oh my gosh, this is like intense. What's wrong with you? Like, what is this? And so, and what, what, what created that was conversations about wants, desires, and fantasies of mine. Mm-hmm. And so I'd studied Dr. Joe's work for many years. I've been to his, many of his retreats. Um, literally the tattoo on my arm was after my first advanced workout or uh, workshop. workshop. Joe Dispenza? What's that? Yeah. Dr. Joe Dispenza. Yeah. Okay. And so I found, I created a reality outside of me that was more real than the internal inside of me mm-hmm. through meditations, through different types of workouts, through different breathing. So go ahead. No. I'm not oh, so, so it was outside of me and it was bigger. So then I started getting, 
I had one foot in 3D and then one foot in a different dimension. Don't know where it was, but then I, I couldn't start correlating. So I was starting to say things and do things and feel things. But then this is the same time as if you're a follower of, of astrology and the Greek calendars and things. This was during COVID. Uh-huh. So the government threw way too much money at people in my industry and what we did. So we had built our dream house. We completely remodeled it. I wasn't doing what uh, everything in my life shifted mm-hmm. and it created this perfect runway for me to sit with her and be real for the first time where I was able to lay down with her. Our sex life was a 12 out of 10. Our finances were a 12 out of 10. Our ch- I mean, everything was going Almost so perfect. Everything was so great that was there was so nowhere for his attention to really focus on any problems to like grasp to, to be like, oh no, I got to go fix this over here. There was no grounding to where it was just here to put my awareness. Correct. Mm-hmm. And I ran out of things to do. The house was done. My office was done. Um, and so it was a perfect storm. I was in Florida with my sales staff and my operations staff. She was in, in, in Florida, three hours away from us at Legoland <laughs> with our eight-year-old and my sister <laughs> and my nephew. And then my mom had my four or three-year-old at the time. And I'm laying on a beach, listening to a podcast from Aubrey Marcus. And I go into a full shock. Like a panic attack. Like a full on, I'm by myself on the beach and I'm on a full panic attack <laughs> and I don't know what to do. And it was the same feeling intensified that I had two nights before that in our bedroom. Mm-hmm. And then a week before that in our bedroom. And it was, we're having a conversation. My, I turn pale, my fingers start moving, my lips turn purple. And I start having a full neurological, like my body shaking. Reaction. I can't control it. And like, I don't know what's going on. Response. It's a, I, at the, yeah. I had no clue what was going on, mm-hmm. like zero. And then I'm on the beach and I'm scared for my life. Mm. For the first time ever. I wasn't this scared when I was getting clean or sober from or shooting dope in in abandoned houses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm laying there on the beach and I don't know what to do. So I call her and I'm like, I'm freaking out. And she's like, what are you doing? I'm at a theme park. Let us be with, let let me be with Ryder. Like, 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 what are you doing? Like, what's going on? What's coming up? Like nothing's real in my head. Mm -hmm. I lost the house. I lost her. She was leaving me. The kids were, I I couldn't see the kids anymore. That didn't matter. Um, My mom, everything, the, the bottom, the impending doom that took me to the place that I got, where we got, where we are now, pre before June, the other foot finally dropped. Mm-hmm. I was waiting and anticipating it, but I finally pushed the envelope far enough. The other foot dropped mm-hmm. and I'm laying on the beach and I, and I get on the phone and, and she told me to call a friend of ours and I'm crying, crying, crying with six other grown men around me. And I'm not like that because I don't feel feelings in your week. Right. And so I'm laying, I'm sitting there and, and I'm, don't know what to do. And I'm crying to this man. And I knew him from a mastermind from years before. And he goes, brother, everything that you talked about and everything that you desired is actually the complete opposite. This is your body telling you right now that this is the exact opposite. And this is your body protecting you. Mm-hmm. You're safe. I got you. I love you. And I fucking believed him. And I believed yeah. him. So then the next six to eight months, that's when oh, like. Oh, I slept like one or two nights a week. Mm-hmm. That was rough for you and us. Like that was, that was the point where it's like, he told me I was codependent. Yeah. I'm like, if you, yeah. you don't know what you're talking about. Right. So there was a lot of that happening with deep rooted fears from both of us that the other one was going to leave based off of our codependent cycles and habits. 
and what came of that, because one of us would get triggered and the other one would get triggered, then one would leave, then the other one have to come find the other one. It's like not literally leave, like walk out of our bedroom, leave, like in the house somewhere. But that was the communication around that for a good six months was. Yeah. And it's, was, I mean, it still comes up sometimes and yeah. it's, it's bringing the awareness around it. But when they started telling me I was codependent and I'm like, you're crazy. And then I read codependent no more, no more. And then I went, you're not crazy. You're codependent. And I read those books and I got the workbooks and I'm starting to listen to it. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm codependent. Yeah. Like, and so now the idea of having an interdependent relationship, I'm like, no, that's why would I, why would I well, want to be married fear, to you? Cause then Cause my the codependency came out and then now coaches are saying like, okay, no, you have to be okay within that you don't depend on this other person for your soul being of life. And then now all of a sudden I was gone and then he didn't need me. It was just like, Oh, scary. Stuff. That was the moment within those couple months. That was probably like, we, I believe deep in our soul, we knew that neither of us were going anywhere, but so much of that deep rooted trauma would come up and then like play with us and be like, Oh no, 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 no. And then we'd have There's to like so much comfort in codependency. Well, of course it's like Netflix and ice cream. Yes. It's great. It's I, I was reading, it was in one of her other, but it might be in the codependent workbook, but she originally wanted to title the book. It was like, um, it was like codependent less so or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, Cause you know, no more is like a little bit of a stretch, but, um, so, okay. So let's dig into that abandonment shit then. Um, each of you, let's start with you, Mallory. What was some of your, was there any abandonment trauma or in childhood? Like what was your experience with either physical or emotional abandonment? Um, and that's, that's the, the part that gets me. Cause I mean, I wasn't physically like left anywhere. There isn't oh any of that. However, my parents growing up, like we were talking about my parents are the ones that we don't have a relationship with anymore. I was always the fixer mm-hmm. in my household to where if my mom had her depression, anxiety, whatever was going on with her, I'd have to come and fix her. So they were great parents growing up, but at a younger age, if I would have had to come in and step in as that role to fix my mom, that led me into when he would have a reaction or something would happen, I'd automatically have anxiety and want to go fix him or help him. And then that is the cycle that would come up for us. So I would want to immediately go fix whatever was going on with him, even if it had nothing to do with me, because I immediately made it mean that it had to do something with me, whether it did or whether it didn't, because that's what I dealt with growing up, no matter what is going on with mom. That's parentification. And that is a form of emotional abandonment. Because when you, when you are, you know, your parents are emotionally abandoning their role as being your parent. Yeah. No, same thing for me too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were great parents. I will say that was when we went through therapy and we still weren't enough for your parents. How about that mm-hmm. wound? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we didn't it's give a shit. True. Tell my dad to fuck off. True. But your parents, we tried everything we could yes. to make that right. No, you're right. Even apologizing. But the, the last mm-hmm. straw was when the therapist said, you can't tell him to me. I apologized. And, he, and, he, and her dad says, you didn't apologize the way I wanted you to. Mm-hmm. Right. We did everything we could. And then they still rejected us. Correct. That's a deep wound. That. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I had a lot of like blame coming on to me for my own depression. She would like, my mom blamed me for her depression because I was depressed. So there's like a lot of that going on. So 
it just came out in when everything went down last year, like a lot of that came up that we weren't even ready for. And your stuff came up first. And then my state stuff came up. Cause I didn't really know at the time, like really, cause I was there just to be like, Holy shit, what's happening with you? Like, let's make sure you're okay. And then that's also part of it, right? Like make sure everyone else is okay first. And then I'll figure it out on my mm. own after that. Yeah. And that's like, that runs really deep. And what about you, Jeremiah? What, oh man, those good your, ones. How do you, what was your dysfunctional family like? So a lot of it too, we didn't know like this inner childhood shit. I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, and now that's like, we spent all of our time doing, like we spent 20 <laughs> plus hours a week each in this work. And she, when it became aware for me in June, she held space for me. And so now she's going deep and I'm, I'm there to hold space for her and let her, you know, go as deep as she needs to go. And as her body's going to allow her to go for me growing up, a lot of it, you know, it, it's real to me, right? Like I remember multiple times because there was four of us growing up where my emotional needs were never met. My childhood, my, my innocence was stolen from me by my dad because he, I would run down the stairs to be loud when he smoked weed in the living room. And I didn't know it at the time, but I had somebody guide me through it. Like that then told my body that I wasn't important enough mm-hmm. that I, that I, I wasn't allowed to feel. And I wasn't allowed to have be a kid in my house and be curious. My mom was completely irrational. Like my mom, taught me how to go from zero to 200 to zero in less than five seconds. Go from, I love you. What the fuck are you fucking what shit? And this is to my children Uh like yesterday. And she'll look at me and now now she does this thing where she'll put her hand on me. Like I'm okay. Cause I'm, I'm freaking out and I have no idea, but then I can bring it straight back to zero. Like, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. She's like, uh, but I was here. You just lost your shit. And so not being able to emotionally handle anything allowed me and, and my mom taught me that, that that that's the way that you handle life. Like, so you don't actually have to feel anything to mm-hmm. you lose your shit and then do it. And so my mom is very hyper like me and, and our, our oldest child. And so I need love that way. So if she has no energy to give me, if she doesn't go around, clean the house, rearrange my bedroom once a month and do those kinds of things, I'm like, you must not love me because that was the only way I was able to be shown love. Mm-hmm. And then my dad constantly growing up, the story I remember my dad, ever since I can remember, he hated my mom and he would pull into the driveway and be like, son, the shittiest part of my day is coming back home to see your mom. And so like, that was like the anchoring point of like, that's marriage. That's what it is. And that's just to start a few of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you guys read the laundry list before? Have not. No. Mm. <laughs> you guys need to read the ACA book. I'm telling you. It ACA? Is. Yeah. yeah right children of alcoholic and dysfunctional. I mean, it'll, it'll fucking, I mean, when I read that the first time, I mean, it blew my mind way more than it's like. I mean, it's taking this codependency stuff to the next level. So, okay. So this is the laundry list. So these are like the 14 traits of a, an adult child. Um, I'm curious which of these you guys relate to. Oh my God. Like everything is excitement. She's, I, I can have the most exciting moment in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And what do we, what do you say to me? We have, we have 12. We have 12. What, what do you say to me? What do you say to me after I've experienced the most exciting thing in the world? I'm not sure. You always tell me you're like, you're going to want more tomorrow. Oh yeah. Yes. There's, okay. I didn't know where you're going with never that. Enough. It's never enough. 
So what do you think about this one? Oh yeah, for sure. We have overdeveloped sense of responsibility and it's easier for us to be concerned with others rather than ourselves. The, the, this enables that, us not to look so closely to our own faults. I say yeah. so busy. I don't have to be aware. Yeah. Number six for me, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love and pity. To, oh my God. I can't until a month ago. I, I never told Mallory I was tired because uh-huh. I thought if I was tired, then, then she wouldn't, then she wouldn't want to have sex with me. And I can only get love by intimacy mm-hmm. because I mean, early stages of pornography. Mm-hmm. And so I, those anchorings. So this one, like I didn't, I didn't think that this one initially applied to me because I had always been able to talk about my childhood and not get upset about it. Yeah, that's you. And oh, so that's I him. thought that that meant that it didn't impact me. But Dude. what I, but what yes. I realized you, this is what I would do. I would, it would be like, I was a newscaster standing in front of, in front of a burning house, but it's actually my house, you know? That's exactly you. Cause even your, your coach was like the way that you share about this childhood. It's like, you literally just ordered dinner off of a menu. He That's goes, not he goes, trauma trauma. He goes, he goes, you're a 10 out of 10 in all three areas. And he goes, I don't, th- that was to be expected. The way you told me this was like, mm-hmm. exactly. Like she just said, just like so, I didn't said. read it. So people know it was number 10. We have stuffed our feelings from our traumatic childhoods and have lost the ability to feel or express our feelings because it hurts so much denial. Yeah. I mean, I really thought because I could talk about it, that meant it didn't impact me. Yeah. So how did you work through that? Because I, I, I get clients all the time mm-hmm. in a that same of, way. Cause I'm, I'm the same you, way. So like my story is like, you know, I hit my adult child bottom at nine years sober. Um, I found a therapist who really fucking understands this stuff. I'm telling you, this stuff is like, so you're going to read the, you're going to read the adult child book and it's going to fucking blow your mind. It is amazing. That's why I'm so passionate about this work. I mean, it really has just the amount of growth and transformation. The meetings are great, but I think it's really having a therapist. That's good. But I mean, tell, I'm telling you this. I mean, I've done Al-Anon, I've done Coda, I'm obviously an AA, but like this adult child shit is like really where it's at. This is the next level of AA because a lot of my mm, friends that go to 12 steps, they're like, go there and they stay in this plateau and it's a safe cocoon. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like go experience life now outside of your two meetings a day. And then once you do that, like your AA is the safe place for you to hide. I had no idea that I was suffering from complex PTSD, like no fucking clue. And so I think that there's so many people who, well, I think that there's, I think everyone in AA probably at a certain point needs to go to ACA or at least read this stuff. But, um, I just think there's so many people out there who are oblivious that like the recurring issues that they're encountering in life is actually a result of like their unresolved childhood shit. And this is why there's people in AA that have 20 years sober and they're fucking miserable. I love you. Like, this is so fucking good. I, I, I try to explain this to people and I'm like, so during one of my coaching contracts, I had a coach tell me, I'm like, well, no, I'm addicted to sex. That's what it is. I'm addicted to sex. I'm going to go to S a, uh, S S a or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, you're not. And he's like, no, you're not. Because that's another label that you're going to put on yourself. That's going to then take you to heal. And he would just say, stop, mm. slow down be with yourself. He made me stop meditating, made me sit outside. And this is the work that he goes, why did you, why did you, why did you pick up drugs and alcohol in the first place? And I'm like, because I liked it because I liked the way it made me feel. Mm-hmm. And he goes, what else? 
And I gave him a few other things and he goes, good. That's what they told you. Now, why did you really use? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, cause I didn't feel like I was enough. And I didn't feel like, and, and I go on and on and he goes, okay, why did you feel that way? What took place in your life to, for that to happen? And I'm like, I don't know. He goes, because your body's keeping you safe because it's unsafe to go feel it. So now our only thing we can do and that's when, when I got into EMDR therapy and he goes, we're going to set you down. We're going to slow you down enough. And, and those, those intrin, those, those extrinsic value, um, thoughts are going to be, start pulling out the intrinsic thoughts. Mm-hmm. Those ones that your body, remember your, your, your mind will mm-hmm. forget what your body always remembers. Mm-hmm. And there's a book I read, the body keeps the score yep. that started teaching me those things. And I'm like, wait a minute, if I heal the traumas, that's actually the cure to, 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 to all of my problems. All this is just faulty childhood programming and it just manifests in different ways. And for me, the reason I think that this work is so fucking transformative is because this is how I like view it. So it's like AA taught me like how not to drink, like Al-Anon helps with like learning how to have boundaries and be in relationships. But like this adult child work has like, I've learned how to be my authentic self, you know, we be truth. Yeah. Yes. Because we, we grow up in these homes where we learn that it's like not okay to be who we are. And so we, we, we have these traits ingrained in us, like in order to survive, like that's how we had to act in order to survive. And what happens is like our true self goes into hiding and this faulty self like emerges. And so that's why I think true freedom is like really addressing all of this shit, you know? I believe it's really the core. This one. So when I read this one that I have highlighted that one, I mean, I was just like, holy fucking shit. We are dependent personalities who are terrified of abandonment and will do anything to hold on to a relationship in order not to experience painful abandonment feelings, which we receive from living with sick people who were never there emotionally for us. <laughs> that was us. <laughs> <laughs> and it was perpetual. It was she would go into her response. I would go into my response and we were so busy at building our dream life. Mm-hmm. Then we got it. And we're like, Oh, <laughs> there's nothing else to work for. Now uh-huh. it's us. Yeah. Is this enough? And because I never fixed the actual problems to my alcoholism or just my ism, there was never enough. The ism. Mm-hmm. The ism. It's like, uh, there's never enough. There's not, and there's nothing else that I can do outside to hide the way I feel about myself. I have so many brothers that are, that, that I work with in sobriety that are in the same point. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to do with this multi-dimensional world that we're living in now. And, 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 and we're getting woken up from these different angles and different dimensions of what's going on and what's even real and what's not real mm-hmm. that like, it's forcing people like us on this call to, to literally rise up to then guide other people. And like that, that's my why. Mm-hmm. Like to, to, to bring oh, the deep truth centering to myself. And the only way I get it for myself is to guide other people through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the purpose. Well, I mean, that's why we are choosing to work with so many couples now is because he sees one end of it. We work with married. Like I have a lot of women in my community and now some of the husbands are coming to work with him and now we're bringing them together. It's like from everything that we've gone through, like we thought we were ready to open up this container last year before all this shit happened. We're like, holy shit, there's no way we were even like <laughs> close to like guiding people through this because we had to go through it ourselves. Like it wasn't, it was just more that surface level coaching mm-hmm. at that point in the beginning of last, last year, just like mindset and like 
okay, how do you communicate? But like, not how you really communicate, like on a soul level, like all the shit that you're not really saying that you're just like, oh, it like, well, we're in a nine month <laughs> somatic program right now yeah. about feeling and releasing emotions mm-hmm. and about how do you embody yes. your truth? A lot of trauma is like a lot of trauma work is involved in our child. Like, but, but it's, and we have to go through it in order to move through the program. Mm-hmm. And you pick up a quarter inch and I always tell Mallory, I'm like, look, it's it, what we're dealing with, what this pain and these, these traumas, they're half a one inch wide mile deep. Mm-hmm. And so our neural pathways are designed to go there. Mm-hmm. And so every, every modality, every course, every conversation, every intimacy, every time we're allowed to be vulnerable, we start building that valley back up and it makes it a little bit easier not to fall and it's not as deep, but that path is always going to be there. And that path is comfortable. So it's, mm-hmm. it's choosing what's in, I'm a, I'm an ism, right? So like, it's putting that thing down, picking what's not comfortable. So I always say what's what, if it's easy now, if it's really easy right now, it's got to be my will. If it's hard now and it's going to be easy later, that's God's will. Mm-hmm. So like, whose will am I living in right now? And who am I trying to be and impress? And I'm like, it's, uh, this sucks. <laughs> <sighs> Mallory, did yeah. you hit a codependency bottom? Um, or was it just like a slow decline? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a point where I was work. we were working with a husband and wife coach, which was great because they were able to bring our separate sessions together. Uh-huh. And then like, they would talk with each other and then bring from that, what we each needed. Um, talk about the sessions that we had in their living room. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there was, there was some stuff that definitely came up when I was working with my coach where she's like, Oh no, you're definitely codependent. And I'm like, excuse me, what? Like you are talking probably to the wrong person right now. Like that's not a thing. <laughs> um, and then I was like, Oh shit. Cause he was in it. And then I was in it. I'm like, fuck, like both of this work so in sync with each other that if it wasn't pointed out to us where we were at last year, I don't, I mean, it would have came out eventually, but it was literally in front of us where we couldn't avoid it. So now we see it for what it is. But like you said, sometimes it's so easy that you just slip right back and you're like, oh shit. Like you have to have the awareness around it. Like I'm doing it like right now I have to pull myself out of that. Um, but it wasn't like, I don't know if it was, I mean, it wasn't as deep as, as where you went to, but it was definitely, you could, it was unavoidable last year to not look at that head on for what it was. Mm-hmm. And we can't compare, right? Like my, yeah. what's hard for me might be a one for her or what's, right. what's a one for her could be a 10 for me. And it's how your body responds to it. So I've never been in my body my entire life. Mm-hmm. I disassociated. Same. I was molested. Like, so my, my coping mechanism is as when I quit drugs, I turned to hopium and I lived on hope. And so my body, if Jeremiah was here with little Jeremy dictating his actions and how he felt the five-year-old version. I mean, I had my background. I just changed it like two months ago, a month ago. Mallory at seven-year-old was my scrim lock screen. And then I was my five-year-old. So when I argued, I was arguing not with this grown woman. I was arguing with a seven-year-old version of her, the one that wasn't enough. And so my body would be three steps ahead of me, two steps above me floating and it would be pulling me, pulling my human here, pulling me. So I was never grounded and I can't be here to hold space for my wife or my family or my friends if I'm always there. But what I could do was pull them with me where I was going. Mm -hmm. And so I got us to this point, but the bottom was, was realizing like, 
we can't go to where we want to go and where we want to go has nothing to do with money, has nothing Mm -hmm. to do with prestige, has nothing to do with everything that we chased our whole lives, which was success. Mm -hmm. We had to throw. And now I'm in a divorce right now with the person I thought I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. How has communication changed for y'all over the past year? Oh shit. That sucks too. (laughs) (laughs) We have to be very, very intentional Intentional and very mindful especially with me where I am right now, like just in recently what I'm, what I have uncovered and some of the stuff that I'm going through, how, what I've noticed is like, we were just going through this, like not too long ago, he could literally just, we just talked about it yesterday on our podcast. Like it's 7% what you say, 32% how you say it. And over 50% is unspoken energy. So like, he'll be sitting here doing whatever and auto automatically I'm triggered as if I caused the look on his face that had literally nothing to do with him. So my previous response, I go into shutdown. I just disassociate. I numb. I don't want anything to do. I can't form a sentence, can't form a thought. And that would be a huge area for us that we would have miscommunication because we, something would come up. I would literally go into shutdown mode. He would be so incredibly hurt. And then it would just, that that's where it would go. We didn't know how to come back. And then codependency would come back. I'd be like, Oh, let me just come back and fix you. And you'd be, you know, like whatever. So we had to really figure we had to navigate that. We still are. And it's a moment to moment. Thing. Yes. 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 And so, and so we, I personally am super critical on myself. Mm-hmm. Very, very critical. And I have to seek to be curious about her and I have to genuinely, and it can't be coming from a fake place. So for the past, even three months, it was, it was, I'm scared still that she's going to reject me. She picks up emotionally and energetically that I'm afraid she then can't feel safe to open up to me. So when I have a conversation, I'll go like this. So what are you doing? I mean, so what are you doing tomorrow? Excuse me. What are you doing? Hold on. And I fucking swear to God, what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> it's not you, that dramatic. You, oh, fuck you. I spent like four times <laughs> with all love, like four times because I don't, I'm, I'm a lot times <laughs> no, four. I've noticed. <laughs> and so I'm so much energy. And then when she doesn't receive it, I'm like, mm-hmm. why don't you want me? <laughs> And so I have to go into a conversation with that because even if he's just coming from a place of work and he's just excited about something, it literally, my body feels attacked by just the massive energy that comes at me, no matter what it is, if it's good, if it's bad, if it has nothing to do with me, I'm like, holy shit. Like I go into like, "Ah!" and then like, we have to navigate that. So like he'd like, and I'm very thankful at this moment because of what we're processing and what we're going through, that he's more mindful now than just like. You know, I, we, I used to tell, like you'd walk in from work just by the way you were walking and like, Oh shit. Mm. I don't even know what happened, but I automatically took it on as my own. And then that's then you a lot na- of the work. And then she went and asked me, right. Now she does. She checks in or she'll be like, Hey, are you okay? Yeah. And I'm like, Mallory, stop asking me if I'm a fucking okay. Okay. Stop. Like, I, I'll tell you if I'm not okay. And she'll be like, obviously you're not. And then she'll give me space. <laughs> and then she'll Come, she'll come answered, back. asked and answered. <laughs> right. And then she'll come right. back. But then like when I have a really exciting day or something happens, I'll go like this. And this is just how I've trained her because she was with me. I didn't train her because I said you will be trained. I trained her <laughs> no. because that's just because we've been together for it's so long. Just the Can we just come in like with a thumbs up or a thumbs down, right? Like 
You know, remember in Gladiator? Yes. Yep. yep. And now we kind of do that with like, he'll come in and like put his hand on my shoulder just to let me know, like, I am okay in this moment. Like it's, you know, like we have some signals now, but yeah, like, yes, you have, it's never was like, I'm going to train you to be this way. It's just how it was. I'll pick my phone up like this and she'll look at me. She'll be like, are you okay? And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I can be looking at Mallory from across the room. I'm like, damn good. You look good. And she'll look at me. But like I just face is like fully like, like resting man, bitch face, like, oh fuck. And, but I don't know what's going on in his head. And she'll be like, do you hate me? And I'm <laughs> I like, I want to rip your pants off. Like, what are you talking about? And I so, don't say that. So we have to be, but it goes levels deeper than that. Crystal clear on that. Mm-hmm. We try our best to use the Imago dialogue. We try our best to come from what's the Imago dialogue. It's, um, you have, I have, I have one of the books right here, getting the love you want book. And so it's the number one communication technique for couples. Uh, and so it's, it's a mirroring thing, but if you don't know how to do it, you, you're going to sound like an asshole. Well, you could come off really condescending, very condescending, like in a way that's not nice. So you mirror, you mirror that Mallory comes to me and she says, Hey, I really had a problem that you came in with such a shitty attitude. And I say, Mallory, I completely understand. So no, I say, so, so Mallory, I get why you said that because I did, I came in with a lot of energy and I didn't even acknowledge you. So now I'm mirroring back and so she's understanding I'm digging for it. Was there anything else about that? That you well, there's really the mirroring, didn't like? There's the clear, the clarifying, questions. The clarifying questions. Like the list. Then there's the validating say, I, Mallory, I completely understand why you're right. upset because and you, did you hear my pitch just go, why? And so then she automatically would shut down. So I would have to why? say, Hey, why? So, so I understand why you're doing, why you would be completely upset about that. And you're because right, you're I fucking would. crazy. Yes. <laughs> right. You're fucking nuts. Right. Right. <clears throat> And so is there anything that, so, so you mirror them, you, you ask anything else you didn't like about that, huh? Yeah. Yeah. bitch. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Fucking crazy bitch. Yes. And so then you, then, then you validate it and then you empathize. And I say, Hey, you know what? I I was probably wrong coming in there. Is there any other way that you would would like me to address that? So she gets the opportunity to be seen, heard. And then I'm curious about what she, what, what she would prefer. So that's, that's essentially the Imago dialogue. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. What about boundaries? <clears throat> we have definitely have boundaries. We have boundaries. I mean, what is the context? Like with other people, with us, like whatever. Okay. Between the two of you. Between the two of us. You give me as much space as I want. I just don't want the space because I still have codependency habits. So I know when Mallory, Mallory's a no, no zone during any morning time. Or when she's tired. Um, <laughs> I don't like to be fucked with in the morning, you know, her and our four-year-old are both the same. Yeah. I just need some space, like some time to wake up. I just yeah. need some space. Like we're very different in yes. that aspect. So his number one love language is physical touch. So like if he could just be touched on on all the time, he'd be like very happy. And that's like one of my lower ones. That's her third. It's not that low. Yeah. It's my well, third or fourth physical. I can't we, remember. We, just retook we took it like two weeks ago. Um, so yeah, I, I need some space in that, in that time. And that's also been part of the communication is, Hey, I need some space right now with not him getting hurt by that. Like, I just need some time for whatever reason, or I just don't like right now. I just don't want to be, if my stomach hurts or my head, like, I just want to be touched or something. I just need a little time for myself. So that's been another part of the communication that's been really interesting to navigate without you having your feelings hurt because I need space, but it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. Oh, yeah. And around work. I mean, so 
in in like the nine different areas of life, love in relationships are one that we challenge ourselves the most on. Every other area, mm-hmm. like boundaries around household chores, boundaries around on, work, yeah. boundaries mm-hmm. around finances, friendships, relationships. Like we're on the same. We're page a ten, for nine out of ten on all, all of those. That. Yeah. Like we don't argue about it. Like we 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 both we're agree we don't page, like yeah. people. Um, very few people we like, and we want to be left alone. We want to dine the way we want to dine. Like if we're eating something crunchy, we go to the other side of the house. Like we have those mouth noises. You know what I mean? And so, and so, yeah, we have those, the boundaries when it comes to, um, I am like you where I'm like, I want to tell everybody everything. My hairdresser knows everything about me, Mm -hmm. my deepest, um, where she is the complete polar opposite. Opposite. Yes. So she has hard boundaries around eye gazing, around breath work with me. I have around certain things that I share with other people that are not things that I choose. Like you don't cross a boundary with that of like pushing you things that we've talked about that I'm like, hey, this so, is not something to go tell the guy down the street at the gas station what happened. Like, can we not do that? I don't tell him about your stuff. I tell him about my stuff. Right. Your own stuff. Yeah. But like there's just some things that he knows, like not to go spill to your friend. To go share, I shouldn't say like we don't gossip about each other, we don't complain about each other to any of our friends. Like that's just something that we don't do. But like e- even some of your own stuff, like you just know we have had that communicate, like that conversation of like some things we just don't share that just stays between us. So we're very clear on that as well. Mm-hmm. And I know you respect that. And and there is, and I I, I like to always push the envelope. Remember that excitement sure thing you talked about? Like I always want to see what's next. Like I really really. Like I live for that shit. And I'm mm-hmm. like, if this is good now, shit, one is too many. A thousand is never enough. Give me 3000, bitch. Let's go. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to circle back to your parents and that whole situation. So how did yeah. that end? We haven't had a relationship with them in eight years. So it ended. It's still, it's still, there's still chapters hopefully to be written. Yeah. We don't know. Like we're, we're in forgiveness modules right now yeah. in our somatic program mm-hmm. to where we hope one day that we can forgive for our own well being. Like I can say, yeah, I forgive them. But the thought of like, if they were coming over right now, I would have trauma responses. Yeah. Mm. See, I'm, I, I had this, I did have to see them at an event last year and I was, um, I was very okay with it. Yeah. Did I try to reach out? No, not really. I have a sister. So like, there's that. She just had a baby. Like we're, we, we see her and her husband. Um, but yeah, I had to see them. I gave, like, I was with, I, you know, I was, I was okay. Like on a somatic level, like I didn't have anything really coming up in the moments that that was happening. And I was okay to see them and nothing really, you know, was I still wouldn't mind punching your dad in the face. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> I going to. Not, let's okay. Was no, there no. a grieving process for you? I mean, <sighs> did you grieve? That's the thing. Cause that's still like, I have some, I have a blessing and a curse that I don't remember a lot of things from childhood. So now that I'm doing more of the work, mm-hmm. more things are starting to come up. Mm-hmm. So we were in a phase that we just moved through it, that there may not have been a lot of processing that happened when that happened. Cause I was also going through my postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. I also just jumped right into competing. There's a lot of things that kind of masked a lot of the feelings that I just poured everything else into to not really sit with some of that. I mean, I've been to therapy, like multiple therapists over it. Like I'm also an EMDR. 
um, that we have gone down that path. Um, but yeah, there might still be some things that, that come up from that still. Mm-hmm. And then what about what laughing at? still might be still <laughs> <laughs> not you. He was laughing. I don't know. Well, I know. I, I think because... that's what he, I think you said, you said might be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I have the EMDR processors too. So I became my own EMDR therapist oh, okay. as well. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, I want to talk about parenting. Hmm. So how, how are you consciously trying to do things different? Oh man. So the biggest thing for me and what it was, which pushed me in June, mm-hmm. which got me my body ready to have the exploratory process it went through was watching the, the at the time and the seven-year-old that we have, he was seven and he had these looks in his face that Mallory wouldn't know that nobody in the world would know unless you've had that experience. Mm. And so my seven-year-old was having feelings that he couldn't describe, but I knew exactly what he was feeling and he was scared and he is scared. He's lost. He has these attachments issues to, to things. When Mallory gets a new car, or I get a new truck. He cries because he didn't say goodbye to it. And like these, these anxious attachment styles that we were never able to be. So it was first bringing the awareness to it. So if you, and so we learned in with, with some of our coaches, how the developmental stages. And so when Ryder was six and a half months old, we went into full shock. So part of what pushed us into shock into the issues where we had to get shitty with her parents Every time Ryder was with her mom, again, high anxiety, he would cry. Mm-hmm. And so my aunt Debbie, which is a, I love her, but she's, she's, she's a lot like me. She, uh, she, she would say, no, he feels your, your son feels the energy. Mm-hmm. And we're like, you're weird. Like, that's not a thing. Yeah, At that point we're like, what are you this talking is about? weird. No, like, there's not a thing. Like, go make money. Like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and um, like, that'll solve everything. And so then he was he was robbed because we didn't have an emotional stability between Mallory and I anymore. And we were in panic. I was in shock. We were just in full anxiety. survival mode, like so much anxiety for a so good much three months like, trying to just figure it out. Like we just didn't even know there was no grounding. There was yeah. no nothing. It was just like so much of the unknown. And he could, we had no idea at the time as a baby was feeling all of that and taking on all of that. And we didn't know. We had no idea when this was all. And now he can't be alone. He told me literally two nights ago, he goes, dad, I'm going to live with you and mom until I'm married. And I said, why? And he goes, cause I don't like being alone. Mm. And I'm like, now I got, no, now I know what I get to do this summer, you know, is, is get him and start doing those mindful things with him. And, Mm -hmm. and, and I, Mm. there's a story that was told to me about a trauma response about a kid that was in his garage with his dad and his dad told him to go get a wrench and the kid goes and gets an Allen wrench and then he gets a screwdriver. And then, and then he, the dad goes, what the fuck is wrong with you? Go inside. You're useless. Just well, like he got mother. the wrong tool. Cause he got the wrong tool. And, and those exact moments happened to me mm-hmm. growing up. Mm-hmm. And so I've always been trying to gain approval from Mallory because my dad never mm-hmm. gave it to me. Mm-hmm. And so the little Jeremy and me needs that approval. And I'm watching the generational repeat mm-hmm. and repeat mm-hmm. and watching him go back. So now it's full circling, knowing the awareness and saying, how does that make you feel? 
How do you feel about that? Is there anything you need from daddy? Is there anything that I can do for you? Is there something that you would like to do? What are you trying to say right now? Get inside your body. When he starts freaking out, wiggle your hands, wiggle your toes, breathe into your stomach. Where are you right now? Describe things around you. How are you feeling? Where is the feeling in your body? What does it feel like? Can you put a color or a shape? So we bring the full embodiment. He's in therapy. Is that a big problem or a small problem? What do you do with these problems? Can we solve them ourselves? Do we need to get an adult involved? There's mm-hmm. so many different things that we do when we're in a healthy place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this term, well, parental inner child grief. I'm going to read it to you. I'm curious if it's going to ring trace. So it goes, um, this happens to mothers and fathers who don't want to repeat the past, but don't fully understand how to identify and validate the grief of the child that lives inside of them. They feel they are giving what they never got. And when they give, they feel a kind of pain because the need in their child acts as a reminder or a trigger for the pain of their own unmet childhood yearnings and needs. I give my son everything that I wanted. Mm-hmm. They're fucking spoiled rotten. I mean, they are very <laughs> yeah, spoiled. I give them everything, but mm-hmm. my patience is like a two. It used yeah. to be a negative one. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, you covered like a huge chunk of all of that. I thought you covered a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you feel a yearning that like when we give something to our kids, except the way I heard her say that was what I heard her say mm-hmm. was that I give them something, but then my inner child hurts because I didn't have that. Mm-hmm. And I overdo it sometimes. Is that what you said? Yeah. I mean, it just, yeah, it just acts as a reminder of what we didn't get, you know? Yeah. I, I, I can feel it with my kids. Mm. I can feel it. And then I look at them and it's only my eight-year-old, my yeah. four-year-old. That's her. That's her. That's her healer. It's just like her. And so the eight-year-old, so there's a lineage from my mom. Mm-hmm. You three are very similar. So son. he definitely connects more mm-hmm. with him because they're, they operate very similar and I don't react in some of those ways. I just have different responses. So there's some parts of that, that I just don't understand because I, even as a kid, like I didn't respond that way. So I don't connect with it as much. I'm there for him, obviously, but like he can look at it and be like, oh, fuck. Like, I well, know you, exactly. You, you played alone. Ashton, mm-hmm. our four-year-old, yeah. was playing alone right there yesterday on, uh, at the entryway. And he's having a ball. Ryder and I are on a bike ride down the street and nobody will play. So I was the kid. I called somebody. I'm like, can you play? And they're like, yeah, cool. I'll be there in five minutes. I would sit at the door and I'd pace and wait for him and pace and pace and yeah. pace and pace. That's our oldest. And then, and then my oldest... He goes, let's go hang out with the kid down the street. I go, I go, Ryder, he's mean to you. He goes, yeah, he uses me, but maybe he changed. Let's give him another chance. And I go, Ryder, he's not going to make you feel good. He goes, it's okay. He'll still play with me. And I'm like, like this ugh. was last week. Yeah. Yeah. That were, I, you know, when I was in the first grade, I was friends with this one girl and it was like every day I would walk in and I didn't know if it was going to be a day where she was going to be really nice to me or if she was going to make, I was going to cry as soon as I got into the car. And I was thinking about that, about how, like, I just, it didn't matter. Like if she wanted to be nice to me that day, I'd take it. And like, is that normal for a six year old, you know, but that, that, um, developed a fear within me where like, yeah, like this deep fear that people overnight are going to decide that they don't like me anymore for no reason. Mm-hmm. And so did that change the way that you showed up the next day? 
I mean, I would just take what I could get, but like in relationships, it was there. Like I would, anytime I was in a romantic relationship, just like this deep fear that for no reason, the guy overnight was going to decide that they didn't like me anymore, you know? And then I think sometimes when you have that, those kind of like interfere you all, and then you like act accordingly. And then you kind of like manifest it into your reality, <laughs> you know? Insane. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Like when we look at each other, it's the same way. I'm like, I couldn't design a better partner than I have. Like no joke. Like in my fantasies, I couldn't design a better partner than Mallory. All the, the, no matter what we're going through. And I'm like, shit. I'm like, I, I want to change so much. I want the excitement of change. I want the uncomfortability of change. I want to change. I'm like, shit, I'm a 12 out of 10 in that category. I'm a 10 out of 10 in that one. I'm a nine out of 10. Okay, fine. I'm a six in that one. Oh shit. I'm a one there. Oh, oh. let's address that. Let's go after that. And then I'm like, if it's not you, because you're perfect for me, then what is it in me? And it's that unspoken Mm -hmm. stuff. It's those untreated parts of me, Mm -hmm. the shadows. Mm -hmm. And it's the things that are lying that she can't see that I can't see Mm -hmm. that I need somebody to help guide me through those things. Like for you as a therapist, for us, it was coaches and, Mm -hmm. and different, and different meditations. And, and so what we know now is the only way to get through that is, and I just hired a new coach is, is, um, breath, sound and movement is the only way to release these things. Mm -hmm. Analytically, the old paradigm of therapy was let's talk through this. And it's wonderful. That's the old mindset. That's like, people used to call themselves motivational coaches or motivational speakers. And it's great for 24 hours. And then you're like, Oh shit, I go back to normal. Like you want a transformation. You want to be able to feel and embody something. And those are the only ways you can do it. Yeah. Any closing comments? No, I really enjoyed that. I I always uh, love the opportunity. And the cool thing is, is that you're going to let us air this on our show and it's going to be the 200th episode. I believe it. Hell yeah. Yeah, We were going to do like a celebratory episode. It's like the perfect one. And it just worked out absolutely perfect. No, I just, I know what we're doing in the stuff that we have up ahead and our couples mastermind that we're launching in the mm-hmm. fall and the one-on-one coaching containers that we have for our clients, her level up VIP group. And so if there's anything that any of your audience would like to connect on us deeper, deep dive us, you can hit us up in our DMS with, um, you can, you can find us, uh, her, where are you at? at Mallory I, will put, I will put it all in yeah. the show notes. Amazing. Perfect. Yeah. And you'll find me, Jeremiah. <laughs> you'll just find him wherever, you know, where that might be. Wherever the hell you are. <laughs> if you want to or you don't. If you want to find him or if you don't want to find him, you're right, going to exactly. find him. He'll take it anyway. I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, he'll be there. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey. And as always, I know you fucking did or you got some some issues. Thanks again to Jeremiah and Mallory. I love when people who are in the business of helping other people don't try to act like they have all their shit together, you know, and they're honest about what the hell is actually going on with them. And I try to do the same on this podcast. I hope you guys know that I really, I really don't have my shit together. Um, so what else? Next week, we're talking boundaries. I think that's going to be good. So I did want to say, I actually, Brian number two texted me, I don't know, a week ago or so. I feel like I share like a little bit more juicier tidbits sometimes at the very end because I feel like whoever 
is listening still at this point. They're in my trusted circle. They're my confidants. Um, but he he reaches out every few months or so just to like say hi or whatever. And so he did. And I'm pleasant and I like will go back and forth with him. But then at a certain point, it's just I have to just stop responding. It's like I'll go back and forth a few times and then he just like starts fucking bombarding me with all these messages. It's kind of like when you go to a bar and you're the only sober person there and then it just gets to a point in the evening where everyone's too drunk and it's time to go home. That's kind of like how it is whenever Brian texts me. It's fun. You know, it's okay. Back and forth a few times, but then at a certain point, I got to just dip out of the damn conversation. Um, well, that's about all. As always, join the damn Patreon. Give me a damn five-star rating on Apple. Please follow me on Instagram. Get your friends to follow me on Instagram. Take your friend's phone and just tell them that they have to follow me. Maybe they can just, they don't want to see my content. I think you can do this thing like where it's like says restrict, you know? So just say, Hey, follow this gal. Uh, if you don't like her shit, just, you know, put, put her on restrict, but then I can get the followers. (laughs) I'll take anything. Steal their phones. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok with their phones. Give me a five-star review with on their phones. Okay. Can we start making this happen? I should pro what if I did a contest where I was like, all right, the most uh, ninjas, who can go on the most amount of relatives, friends, acquaintances, um, the most amount of rando people that don't listen to the podcast that they can get on their, uh, get them to follow me on Instagram and give me a five-star rating. I should have like a, like a grand prize, you know, at all costs, baby, at all costs. Remember, we are doing the Lord's work here. You could even ask strangers. What if you're, you know, maybe you're on the bus or I don't know, you're walking down the road and you're like, hey, um, I lost my cell phone. Do you mind if I just shoot somebody a text from your phone? Take the stranger's phone, go in their Instagram, follow me, go into their, their Apple podcast, give me a five-star rating, and then, you know, t- just hand them back their phone. That is actually considered an, you know, an act of service to humanity. So I highly encourage you. Uh, I will see you guys next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. Okay.